Alright folks, today I'm going to read from Tibetan Shamanism, Ecstasy and Healing. This is chapter <coughs> 5. The Yeti, Spirit of Himalayan Forest Shamans. Ban Chankri or forest wizards, are an almost unknown forest tribe credited with great powers of healing. Um, just a second. Okay. The Yeti is wild, widely known, but not well understood. Its physical presence, accepted as fact by most Himalayan people, was the subject of much scientific study. In the end, reports and evidence of its physical existence failed to meet the scrutiny, scrutiny of paleontology and zoology. But the Yeti has a ubiquitous presence in Himalayan culture. It is a living, current, popular mythology and a folkloric treasure whose origins I seek to uncover in this chapter. <clears throat> Um, Yeti were originally fierce spirits of nature, mountain goddesses, and forest wild men of the pre-Buddhist Bonpo shamanism of Tibet. So, in Tibet, the indigenous religion was Bon, B-O-N, Bonpo, or, or Bonpo, okay? And then, and that was basically shamanism. Tibetan Bonpo shamanism, okay? Until uh, Buddhism came in um, later on as the state religion. So this is this is what I'm saying. If you if you look back at history, you will now start to see the difference between the indigenous nature worship religions, not religions, but just that that is the original. That is the original true spirituality before you know the state, the people who settled down um, just wrote it down basically. The original spiritualism is the Bonpo the, the Bon shamanism and then <clears throat> the which is which is usually oral oral tradition and then the state religion, the organized state religion is the one that comes in and writes that shit down so that they can control the narrative, so that they can control the outcome. That is the difference between state organized religion and just indigenous natural nature worship religion, which is basically shamanism. Okay, they are principal characters in a vast oral mythology of becoming a shaman, a spiritual biography of the Yeti, is described from the perspective of an anthropology of consciousness and history of Tibetan religions. Okay. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying, guys. Like, the Bible stories, in my opinion, take place over here in this, in this Central Asian, this Tibetan plateau. Like, all the themes, the geography... Everything, the context for the stories, except for the names, let's say, seem to fit this area, this theme of bond, bond shamanism. Like, I might do, uh, I might do one on bond shamanism, but you'll hear a lot about it in here. But it's very interesting. Like the the the. Okay, so the Bible, I think, is, 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 is copied image for image. Not word for word, but image for image. The words can, I think, got edited and changed, you know, to fit a certain narrative that they chose. Probably the Pope, you know. Um, yeah, everything. Like, the whole... Vatican, the Pope, everything is just is just a complete plagiarism of this of Tibetan shamanism. You look up Tibetan shamanism, 
everything. You will find everything, at least the New Testament. I guarantee you, everything in the New Testament, theme, idea, everything, man, comes from this, bond shamanism, in my opinion. Alright, let me just continue. The Yeti and the Banjangri. The Banjangri, male forest shaman of the Nepal Himalayas, and his spouse, the Banjangrini, are thought to be spirits or deities who initiate shamans, as well as living creatures with a partially human, human physical presence. I wonder if this is what I saw the first time I took mushrooms. We were out on this hill out in the country on this open meadow. It was nighttime. Around, we were around a bonfire. It was a clear night. There were fireflies. Stars were out. And I'm sitting on my chair <clears throat> um, just looking in the into the fire and stuff and like i see i see these two um shapes body shapes i guess but they're made out of light okay one looks masculine one one looks feminine and what they seem to be standing inside is it literally like legit looked like it was in the shape of a vagina basically like these two were inside this shape, the, 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 the typical, like, what's the, it's, you know, thin up top and then bends and then opens up in the middle and then thin down in the bottom. And it's, it's, and they were standing in between in inside it and they were just made out of light. It wasn't like, I couldn't see their faces or nothing, but it was like just light beings standing there and i was like i was looking around i was like you guys see this shit or am i or am i the only one see this shit but anyways i wonder if those were the spirit deities hmm interesting okay anyways okay the the males are half monkey <laughs> look at this shit man the males are half monkey half human guru of shamans Ban, okay, B-A-N, Ban Chankri, J-H-A-N-K-R-I. Ban Chankri is also the Nepali name for, yo, Pali, was apparently before Sanskrit, Nepali, Nepal. Nepal, Tibet, it, oh my, okay, anyways, Nepali name for a specific type of yeti described as being three to five feet tall, and except for face and hands, covered from head to toe with thick red or golden hair. Hmm, red hair, hmm, okay. Nepali shamans, Nepalese shamans say his wife, the Ban, ban Jankrini, is a much more formidable mixture of human and simian or bear standing 12 to 15 feet tall with thick long black hair what the fuck is simian hold on let me look this up also folks did you see the 7.3 earthquake in indonesia that happened today okay simian God is a volcano and she is coming. Okay, simian. Relating or resembling or affecting apes or monkeys. Greek simos. Flat-nosed. Interesting. It basically means... From Latin, simia. Ape. Greek simos. Flat-nosed. Huh. Okay, anyways... Human and simian or bear standing to okay, these two types of yeti are the myth mythical and spiritual progenitors of many forms of Nepalese and Tibetan shamanism. So have you ever heard of this before? Did you ever hear any of this shit before? Like when I read this shit, like I 
This is what I'm saying. Like, whatever you look into, you just find all kinds of shit, man. Like, it's, it's just crazy. You look into whatever, and there's just always so much shit to find. But, okay. I don't know what to think of that, but okay, so even the Hindu Hindu god Hanuman, the the monkey god, was he a yeti then? This is a meaning as the spiritual progenitors of many of the t- shamans. So it's like So is this the missing link then? The the yeti? <laughs> this is what I'm saying, this is crazy the shit you find. Okay, anyways, I'll just keep reading. All types of yeti, including Banjankri are indigenous, indigenously believed to be living vestiges of the ancient past. This is crazy because um, the game Far Cry 4, when he's in uh, Kirat, Nepal, right, I think, or in the Himalayas, there's a Yeti expansion. I haven't played it yet, but I, I want to. Okay. <clears throat> and and even in Far Cry 4 the game um if you look around in the house of what's his name Pagan Min and in the beginning of the, of the game if you look around his his house you'll see the paintings of the of the what was the what was the of the demons the the demon gods the the protector demon gods the it was called the Dharma something Karma Mel or something. And basically, I mean, <coughs> you look at those pictures, and it's like, yeah, that's a volcano. That's a fucking volcano god going off, just devouring people. And then it made me think of, those paintings made me think of Hieronymus Bosch, or Hieronymus, Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch paintings, which Dr. Peterson likes to... Um, talk about um yeah the whole apocalyptic this godzilla eating people up <laughs> all right um at the same time the yeti and the bun junkri are characters in a vast oral mythology one that is not merely a story told but a reality lived in culture consciousness and the initiations of Nepalese shamans. It is a current living mythology, not a fossil, but a recognized way to become a shaman. According to legend and personal reports of shamans who have encountered them, the Banjankri kidnap potential shamans, typically between 7 and 17 years of age, and bring them into the forests and caves where they live in order to teach and initiate them. During abduction, the all right, you, you, between the ages of 7 and 17 years of age. There you go, Jesus, Jesus was a shaman. Okay. During abduction, the Banjankri causes his candidates to become naked so he may inspect them for spiritual imperfections. Only candidates who are pure in body and heart-mind are accepted for teaching, most often for a few days up to a week, but sometimes for a month a year or even more before being returned often to the place of their abduction. Candidates who do not pass inspection because they are spiritually impure are thrown from the cave by the Banjankri or worse, by his big ferocious wife who threatens to kill her husband's novices, to cut off their limbs and heads with her with her golden blade and to eat them. Sounds like Kali. Sounds like Kali to me. <laughs> The purpose of this chapter is to point to an often neglected identity in the anthropology of the Himalaya between the two genders of Yeti and the two genders of Banjankri or forest shaman. I'll just, I'll just, whenever they say Banjankri, I'll just say forest shaman. Now. Okay, by discussing their parallel and anal- analogous and often identical legends, encounters with humans. Nomenclature and their physical resemblance described in folklore. The method utilized attempts to integrate the personal stories I've collected from Nepalese for Banjankri Shaman, initiate ab- 
abductees with the ethnographies of other researchers to demonstrate the relevance of the Yeti legend to this highly prevalent Himalayan shamanic experience. Okay, the mythic context of Yeti research. The Yeti is mythologically categorized as a type of Bigfoot with analogies in many parts of the world. Specifically, however, when one thinks of the Yeti, one thinks of a tall, burly, long-haired, elusive, intelligent ape man inhabiting the snow-capped Tibet-Nepal Himalaya. The Yeti is well regarded in Nepal, Tibet, and other Himalayan cultures and the subject of a large body of folklore. The government airline, Royal Nepal Airlines, boasts of offering Yeti service, and a tall, big-footed, ape-like Yeti statue carrying a tray of drinks adorns the grounds in front of its Kathmandu headquarters. A Yeti likeness has been on display in the Kathmandu Museum of Natural History, and one is featured on the Bhutanese postage stamp. Commercial products, magazines, hotels, restaurants, companies, and shops are named after it. Expeditions have been launched to cite Yeti. World Book Encyclopedia, sponsored one by Sir Edmund Hillary, who was joined by noted American zoologist Marlon Perkins. Millionaire, oilman, and explorer Tom Slick led three expeditions, and numerous adventurers, mountain climbers, and scientists made equally sincere attempts. Because Yeti have fascinated Western curiosity, novels have been written, and fictional and documentary films produced. There was so much interest in the Yeti that in 1958, the Nepalese government, recognizing its value as a source of national revenue, declared the Yeti a protected species and made it illegal to hunt or try to capture one without a special license, costing the handsome sum of 400 pounds. That was back in 1973, damn. Alright, Yeti scalps, fur skins, skeletal hands, and other Yeti relics that are sacred to the Sherpa are kept in protected cases at Buddhist monasteries monasteries in the Everest region. Unusual five-toed plantigrade footprints purported to belong to Yeti have been found, cast and photographed, generally described with the large toes splayed out, facing backward, and non-opposable to the other toes. Alright, anyway, I'm going to I'm gonna wait. Sorry. Okay, where was I? Uh, I think, um, I think I should have just started from the top. Okay, I'm going to go back to the top. Fucking man. Yeah, let me read from the introduction. This is this is pretty interesting. Alright. Soul, which is written L-A in Tibetan, I guess. Soul fulfills an important role in Tibetan shamanism. Tibetan beliefs regarding the individual's soul or souls have changed over the millennia. Before Buddhism in indigenous shamanism, Bon, there was a belief in an immortal soul. When when Buddhism came to Tibet in the mid-8th century CE, it arrived with very different ideas regarding the soul. Still in the folk religion of lay culture and in shamanism, the belief in soul persists, albeit how it is viewed has changed due to Buddhism and a millennium later due to exile and subsequent acculturation in Nepal. Alright, let me just fucking aim at like 
forgot where the... Okay, yeah. This chapter, okay, blah, 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 blah. Okay, Shaman, Lama, and Bone. The Pao, or Po, I don't know how you pronounce that. Okay, so it's spelled P-A-U, which I think is the source for where they got the whole character of Saul. I mean, not Saul, Paul. <laughs> the Pao are Buddhist. But their shamanic practice and beliefs originated in the Tibetan indigenous tradition known as Bon. Tibetologists, Tibetologists <laughs> distinguish an old form of Bon that, that has an oral tradition and a later form that has a literary tradition and is monastic like Buddhism and arose after Buddhism came to Tibet. Buddhism came to Tibet from India. Okay, these two forms are sometimes referred to as revealed bond and the newer systematized development textual bond. The latter is a religious order, but in the earlier tradition, bond or bond po, practitioners of bond, refers to an independent indigenous priest, invoker, sorcerer, or more to the point, shaman. It does not refer to a church or organized religion. The earlier bon is the indigenous is the indigenous shamanic tradition prior to the arrival from India of Padmasambhava, the Buddhist cultural hero who is credited with bringing Buddhism to Tibet in 749 CE, subduing the local bon deities, converting them to Buddhism and binding them by oath to be defenders of the Buddhist, Buddhist faith. Yeah, the Dharmapala in Sanskrit. That's what that... Look up Dharmapala. Those are the protectors of... Defenders of... Uh, okay. It is these converted bone deities, the Dharmapala. So it's basically Dharma and Pala. P-A-L-A. And not the heavenly high-ranking Buddhist deities who have the significant role in the Tibetan shamanism practiced at the camp. The camp Pao, Paul, P-A-U, Paul, Pao, the camp Pao do not affirm affiliation to Bon, as Bon is heresy to Buddhism. They trace their, or their origin as shamans to Padmasambhava in the 8th century and not to Bon. Nevertheless, the practice of shamanism is not part of the Buddhist uh, structure and reflects beliefs and an indigenous tradition prior to Buddhist cultural patrimony. It is, okay. Buddhist preeminence and the hierarchy of Lama and shaman are formally validated in a myth that in one version or another is omnipresent in Tibetan culture. Okay, also this word Lama, I think when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabakdani. I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm telling you, there has to, there is definitely a link between this and Christianity. The, the, the symbology is, is all over, is all over. Alright, moreover, this key story is represented on the shaman's altar. To the far left and far right of the Pao's altar sit two cone-shaped piles of sampa, roasted barley flour, with a pile of rice in the center. Volcano. Each is placed on its own raised round wooden tray. The pile on the right is Mount Kailash. I'm telling you, Mount Kailash is probably the, is probably Sinai. Okay, um, is Mount Kailash the holy Hindu and Buddhist mountain thought to be at the center of the world and an axis linking heaven and earth. I'm telling you, I think Mount Sinai is is Mount Kailash, where Moses got his... Or at least these stories were taken from here, I think. And just moved over to the Middle East because of geopolitical reasons. Because it's all about oil. Fossil fuels. You need a story for 
you need a story for all this to make sense, though. That's why you have uh, Christianity. That's my theory, theory at least. Alright. Historical text. I think Tibet is the real Israel. Tibet is the kingdom known as on the roof of the world. New Jerusalem, it says, it comes down from heaven. Go look at some of these Tibetan uh, monasteries up in the fucking mountains, man. They're right there on in the heavens. The heavens mean the mountain tops, basically, the volcano tops. Those that's basically what heavens meant. These are this is it. I think Tibet was the original Israel, which just you know the Pope and the Vatican and all these motherfuckers just look up cowbirds. Look up what a cowbird is. That's what the Pope and all these fucktards are. They're cowbirds. This is the original... This is the original truth. Which those fucktards took. And now they're just milking people all over the world. Anyways. Historical texts characterize it as a Bon Ri or Bon Mountain and the surrounding area a famed center of Bon activity. In the story, as told by Pao Nyema, Milarepa, the Buddhist ascetic saint, and the Bon shaman, Naro Bon Jung, look at this, his last name is Jung, like J-U-N-G, like Carl Jung, Naro Bon Jung had a contest to race up to the top of Kailash. The one who reached the peak first would win jurisdiction over the mountain and religious authority. Naro, Naro raced up by playing his drum, the sound of the drum being his horse. Shamanism, I'm telling you. It's, 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 it explains everything. Meanwhile, Milarepa remained asleep. When his assistant came to awaken him, Milarepa said, Call me when the sun rises. Later, he flew on a rainbow to the peak, and on his way past Naro, Naro fell to the ground along with his drum, landing upon stinging nettles, a food sacred to Milarepa, but that stung the shaman. The dark descending ravines on one side of the mountain show the path of Naro's fall. However, Milarepa felt compassion for the shaman and gave him as consolation a less important mountain. Uh, Tijung? Depicted? Okay. Where Naro resides with his drum. Telling you. It, it says over here, the rainbow part, it made me think of leprechauns, Ireland. They have all this symbology all over. Um... Mountains, shamans, rainbows, volcanoes. Um, King Arthur is, is, is apparently buried in Mount Etna, Sicily. Why the fuck? Why the fuck would... He's a shaman. I'm telling you. He's a shaman. Okay. Although this story is about the eclipse of Bon... Bun. Or they... At least from how I've heard them say it, they go Bun... Although this story is about the eclipse of Bun, it is also it also affirms an enduring but marginalized and circumscribed role in religious culture. A small portion, Nima says, the less holy mountain where the shaman resides with his drum, graciously given to the defeated shaman by the Buddhist saint. <laughs> Thus, this myth, which explains elements present on the altar, provides a cultural character sorry, cultural charter for the persistence of traditional shamanism, that is, the practice of the Pao. At the camp, the Pao's practice is, in, is independent of the Buddhist Lama, but the Lama grant authority by recognition. A Lama sometimes presents the Pao, the fabric from which his first costume will be sewn. Nyama received such material from a Rinpoche, priest of high rank and education, of the Sakya lineage. H.H. the Dalai Lama gave Wang Chuk an old and tattered costume once belonging to the state oracle as well as a letter certifying the authenticity of his work 
after he was called to Dharamsala, the residence of okay, to do his to do healings. Alright, so this whole section here <clears throat> uh, received such material to be to to make his costume. Uh, makes me think of in the Bible when Elijah or Elisha passed on the what was it? Wasn't it a sort of robe? Not robe. Um, it was some sort of fabric, I think. I think right that he passed on to Elijah, then who was supposed to become the next, you know, prophet. It's all there. The symbolism is all there. Alright, um... All of the Paws ritual paraphernalia are consecrated by Lama... By Lama and therefore sacred. <coughs> further, much of it is... Further, much of it is gifted by Lama. The Pao take pilgrimages to many sacred Buddhist sites, monasteries, and teachers seeking power, knowledge, and blessings. Pao are tested by respected Lama as well as by Elder Pao, which is how Richo referred to his teachers in Tibet. Yeah, even in the Bible, in the New Testament, it says, test, test those who come with, you know, new Gospels or whatever. Test them. Uh, testing discerns if a candidate has visions of deities or demons in a brass mirror, ling or gling. Shiva Linga, Ling. Okay, this is done to determine whether his strange behavior is the result of a calling by the deity, deities to shamanism or an illness caused by harmful spirits. The former initiates shamanic training, the latter necessitates healing by power or by Lama. So the whole mirror part makes me think of true romance. When he looks into the mirror and sees his God self character projected out as Elvis, who was played by Val Kilmer. By Cameron Mind, Brass Mirror, Shaman, it's it's, it's all it's all there. The Matrix, the mirror, it's all there, bro. It's all there. Okay. Nyema told Burgley a pal needed knowledge in four subjects. Number one, the channels or veins in the body. Number two, how to describe the appearance of the gods seen in the brass mirror as occurs in testing. Lama or elder Pao teaches these first two, two subjects. A pal must also know, number three, how to heal by sucking. Mm. And number four, how to invoke the proper deities to do jib and other ritual healing procedures. These last two must be learned from another pow. Okay, um, let me see. Okay, the pow often refer their patients for supplemental healing by a camp lama. These lama are distinct from the Rinpoche and monks who reside in Jangchob Choling, the large camp monastery of the Kagyutpa, order that has about 120 resident monks and a Buddhist educational institute. The Lama to whom the Pao refer are lay Lama, who while robed reside in the camp with their families. A Pao after healing a patient may decide the patient also needs a long life empowerment or may ask a camp Lama to read from the holy texts part of which contain powerful mantra and spells necessary to strengthen a person. Although they have overlapping responsibilities and perform some rituals with the same purpose, the Pao do them in a way distinct from uh, these Lama. Okay. Yeah, this is what I want to get to. The La and the Sog Souls and the Soul Calling Ritual. Okay, the Pao maintained that there is only one soul, the Nam She. As a Buddhist con concept, the Nam She is consciousness in a very wide sense. It has a number of consti const constituent, constituent parts, including the La and Sog, 
but it but is not conceived as a soul. Still, because the man because the Nam She is immortal, the Pao liken it to Atma of Hinduism, that is to say, they see it as a soul. Thus the La and the Sog would appear to be soul parts, but this is difficult to state definitively. In describing their experiences, the Pao sometimes miss the terminological precision of the Rinpoche because they have not had a Buddhist education nor are they literate. Their knowledge comes from tutelage, not from books. For example, they often use the terms La and Nam She interchangeably. Um, in so doing, the Pao convey the notion that the La, like the Nam She, is consciousness, which is similar to the belief of other Tibetan shamans. Based on his interviews in Tibet and with shamans in exile, Beleza writes that the shamans believe their consciousness principle is the law. La. Pao Nima says the law is the spirit inside the person. Hmm. Allah. This is the law. La. Okay. Therefore, and which is interesting because apparently the the Bon or the Tibetan people apparently say there are there apparently there's some link with Tajikistan, with the Tajik people. Um, anyways, um, where was I? Yeah, therefore the law has an, has an ontology or beingness and is not merely the impersonal psychological function or principle of consciousness, but the spirit of consciousness. Hmm. The law also has the attributes of sem, S-E-M. Mind and thinking, Shem, mm, Noah and Shem, and Rigpa, reasoning and intelligence. The La Soul, it seems, is that spirit that constitutes a person, a conscious thinking being. The Pao say that the La possesses Nushug, that is, power, force, energy, and strength, and liken it to the Indian concept of Shakti albeit without the goddess identity. Okay, it is the power of Nushug that animates the body. When a person dies, the La leaves the body. The body then becomes a corpse because there is no Nushug to animate physical existence. Nushug also relates to personal power, skills, talents, strengths, and magical and shamanic abilities. It is also a cosmic power possessed by deities and the inherent power found in sacred objects and amulets. Nu Shug is ardor and passion, as well as capability. A diminishment of Nu Shug is a weakening of the law and a concomitant loss of physical strength, personal power, health, passion, motivation, mental acuity, and focus. Even the person's luck is diminished. Bun shamans, like the Pao themselves, speak of two souls or two part, or soul parts, the La and the Sog or She, T-S-H-E. As the full name of the soul calling ritual indicates, La Kuk She Kuk, the two souls are interrelated and figure in the healing. Sog means life and is also the breath soul. It is inseparable from the body. It flows in the breath, has its seat in the heart, but penetra penetrates throughout the body. It is the life force spirit within us that opposes death, and after death seeks rebirth. When it is weakened, our resistance to death is weakened, and consequently our life is, shor is shortened. Here too, the weakness of the soul is the result of a loss of Nushug, which supplies vital energy to the to the Sog. Soul? Is that where we get soul from? Sog? Hmm. Okay, Pre-Buddhist Bond defines the La as a shadow soul, a 
living double that can temporarily leave the body and wander about. Such a free soul may thus find itself vulnerable to attack and capture. Further, researchers generally agree that a lost or wandering soul is called back or returned by a pao or lama before performing the important uh, soul calling. Yeah, this is what Jesus did. He was a shaman. He would do soul retrievals. Literally bring people out of comas. Okay. <laughs> um, Bergley and Cyphers describe material gathered at the camp from the same shamans as myself. Lessing and Tucci rely on archival Lamaist texts. However, contrary to my current research, the Pau at the camp fundamentally disagree with the definition of the law as a free soul and instead view it as bound to the body in both sickness and health. I will return to explain this discrepancy shortly. It, it, it leads to a new interpretation of the ritual and means of accounting for its efficacy. First, for clarity, dominant aspects of the ritual will be described. To do Laluk, the Pau have three methods, one using a slingshot, another floating a cup in a tub of water, and the third utilize, utilizing black and white stones. Hmm. In all methods, three kinds of beads typically worn as a part of a necklace by Tibetans, one representing the patient's bones made of conch, another symbolizing blood, coral, and the third, turquoise, the brilliant or glowing appearance of a fully healthy person, Don, M. M. Don, are brought to the ritual by the patient. The beads are, pre are pressed into an image of a sheep made of uh, roasted barley flour dough in the first two methods. Beads are pressed into an image of a sheep in the first two methods. Okay, in the first method of La, La Cook, which I did not witness but which Paul Nyema explained, a large pot or tub of milky water likened to Lake Mansar Manasarovar, the sacred lake below Mount Kailash, is covered with a silk greeting with a silk greeting scarf the spag image con the spag image containing the beads is placed into a slingshot and taken outside by an assistant and flung as far as possible the cloth is then is then removed from the top of the tub of water and if the turquoise and the other beads are found in the in the holy water, still spotted with spag and debris from where it was thrown, the soul has successfully called. Afterward, the patient cleanses with holy water and the beads are worn as an amulet. Hmm. In the second method, the, bees, the beads and spag sheep are put into a cup which is floated in the tub of holy water. The cup is spun and if the spag sheep faces the patient when it stops moving, it indicates success. This is determined by stretching a katak scarf from the far end of the pot and across the water to the patient. Thus the direction of the la lug can be precisely determined when it stops turning. I observed Pao Nyama yet use yet another method when there were two patients who both required Lakuk. For one patient, the cub stopped the cup stopped moving and the sheep faced the patient. For the other client, when the sheep did not face her, nine white and nine black stones were placed in the tub of milky water, and the patient was asked to pick three stones. If on three choices a patient picks a majority of white stones, a successful calling of the soul is said to have occurred, albeit even one black stone might require supplemental strengthening of the la by a camp lama. 
Less than two white stones, similar to failure in the other two methods, demands another la cook, usually after the patient receives a lama empowerment or a ritual reading from the sacred text. La cook ends by the patient cleansing with the water and wearing the amulet as in the first two methods. The tub of water and one of the barley flower mounds on the altar are linked not only in geographic proximity but in, but in mythology. They are the mother and father of the regions, respectively, and in Buddhist philosophy, which is superimposed on the myth, both lake and mountain together are necessary for liberation. Mount Kailash is a Lari, soul mountain, said in western Tibet to be in sympathetic connection with the soul of the country. Similarly, Lake Mansarovar, which means mind lake in San... Yo, so spirit, what if spirit of God is just water? No, it can't be water. Cause, hmm. Well, because I was thinking of, if, if Mount Kailash was just looked at as God because it gave, you know, like, fresh water alright um, similarly Lake Mansarovar which means mind lake in Sanskrit mm, look at that why is it called mind lake is a soul lake where pilgrims bathe to purify soul and mind and seek healing in the ritual room Mount Kailash is as mentioned above prominently represented on the altar. The tub of water is a few feet away and below the Pao's altar. The lake and mountain set the stage for the ritual. Pao Richo, Pao Richo says the altar and the ritual area should be made as if it were a holy place of pilgrimage. Thus the ritual is a symbolic pilgrimage to the sacred mountain and lake, that is, to the mythical center of the world for healing and purification. You see that? <laughs> what surprises me is that both Pao emphatically state that the La is not a wandering free soul. That when a person is alive, the La can't leave the body without causing immediate death. If the La leaves, a person will fall to the ground and not have the energy to maintain consciousness or to animate his body, nor would his vital organs continue to function. Thus, he will quickly die. Okay. This is just very interesting, man. There's so much stuff that... Can be learned. Well, let me read um, the conclusion for that chapter. Wait. Mm -hmm. This is probably the last generation of Pao at the camp, as there are no current initiates and little indigenous interest, although there was years ago. Bergley wrote, The Pao were perhaps the most active religious functionaries in the settlement. Even more than the local Lama, they came into contact with the in intimate and personal problems of the villagers. Their seances were popular and spectacular, events where people gathered and met. I think it's safe to say that the Pao acted in the center of the religious life of the village. Based on my experiences in the camp since 1996, such a situation seems difficult to imagine. The healing rituals I've attended over the years never had a large camp audience, only a few family members. Years ago, I had heard stories about some of Wangchuk's rituals being well attended. But this was before I had met him. As, a, as I recall, it was in 2000 that he became too ill to practice regularly. Okay. Uh, at the present time, Nima 
has a small indigenous practice of perhaps five to six clients weekly, mostly Nepalese. Also, one or two Western trekkers monthly, plus European and American tours, touring groups. Okay, in 2005, Nima was invited to Vienna to do healings. Richo is not as active physically and is also a very private person, blah, blah, blah. Still, Nyama, like Richo and Wangchuk before them, relies on the fees and grants he earns from foreigners. If not for this income and acknowledgement, camp shamanism would have far less status than, than currently. And third, okay, crisis of exile transplanted shamanism from its, na from its natural environment, the mountains, snow, the nomadic way of life, into a tropical climate and the sedentary lifeway of a refugee population unable to return to the homeland and sacred places once alive with the stories that push shamanism in context and gave meaning to life. The Pao often speak with great fondness of their former nomadic life and with great passion about their desire to return home. Indeed, exile was and continues to be traumatic in the lives of these men. Yeah, it's just nomads versus Fuckers who decided to settle down, and the fuckers who decided to settle down are just greedy-ass motherfuckers, man. They're just fucking it up for everyone. Okay, the present threat to shamanism was preceded by a much earlier one, Buddhism. As discussed, it converted the bone deities and was, to a large measure, successful because it assimilated and textualized indigenous folk beliefs and shamanic practices. This was quite evident in the archival Lamaist text on the soul-calling ritual in which traditional bond beliefs regarding the soul as well as a sacrificial element have a prominent role, all of which are antithetical to Buddhist scripture. Similarly, the initi initiatory practice of She, che? whose origins belong to prehistory and shamanism, became a Lamaist contemplative practice. On the other hand, shamanism has assimilated from Buddhism the Sa system, which is based on a Buddhist medicine and meditation system that explicitly recognizes the Kyangma, Roma, and Uma Sa, albeit their locations in the body are different than in shamanism. And it seems that there is little difference between a, a Buddhist chakra, the Sanskrit term for centers of subtle energy in the body, and the shaman's sogsa, itself a center in which the sa converge. Further, the medium, mediumistic trance of the pao is understood as a method of refuge a Buddhist concept and practice, though to the Pao, it is a prelude to healing. The Pao at the refugee camp, as mentioned, distinguish between possession and refuge. In their role as spirit mediums, they do not become the deity, but an emanation. This gives the Pao the powers not only of the refuge deity, but of the entire retinue of spirit helpers that are within the deity's emanations to utilize as needed, even to send on journeys. This seems to be unique or unusual for mediums, channels, or for possession trance in general. However, it is the essential definitional, definitional feature and characteristic of shamanism. Thus, if, thus, a free soul is not necessary for shamanic journeying as the Pao can dispatch any member of the deity's return to do whatever is necessary and witness the entire process in the mirror. In the cultural historical process that Beleza calls the Buddha, Buddhization of the indigenous pantheon and ritual practices, shamanism became devalued, marginalized, and subordinated to Buddhism as reflected in the myth Milarepa and Naro Banyung's contest mentioned earlier. With the loss of the nomadic culture that supported shamanism and the religious life of the camp now centered on, around the monastery, the historical process 
of marginalization has accelerated. Thus, shamanism plays a decidedly smaller role in community life than it did in 1970 and 71 when Bergley did his research. At that time, the monastery only had 10 monks and Tashi Palkiel only 400 residents. Bergley writes of the astonishing growth of the monastic compound in his revisit. Currently, there are 120 monks and construction continues. There are very limited educational and job opportunities available as the Tibetans have only refuge status in Nepal. Hmm. And the monastery offers the opportunity for a Buddhist education and community recognition. Buddhism is the solidifying community force and the authority on religious and moral issues. Although there is a strong hereditary element in shamanism, Buddhism is the choice of the children of the Pao who have spiritual beliefs. Camp Lama and Pao have overlapping responsibilities. Often they are called upon for the same reasons, to heal the sick or help overcome life obstacles. This is a major factor contributing to an ongoing assimilation process in which the Pao are being replaced. It is not unusual to have a shamanic ritual and follow it with the same purpose Lama ritual. Just to make sure, I was told by one camp resident. Just to make okay. Pao Nima became upset if it happened after one of his treatments. Nevertheless, when Nima's brother failed to respond to his treatments, a Lama was asked to do a healing ritual that dealt with the same troublesome spirits. Traditionally, the Pao have exclusive areas of expertise. The, tri- the treatment of rabies. Yo, that's interesting. Huh. Because remember when I said it almost looked like these animals that have rabies look like they're possessed? That's interesting. The treatment of rabies, epilepsy, and a deadly bite from an insect found only in Tibet. Sapsok. This is not enough to sustain a vocation in the refugee camp. All other illnesses, whether they are caused by any of the various classes of deities or harmful Nepa spirits or from fright, are treated by Camp Lama as well as Pau. Lama and shamans are competitors. No matter no no matter that shamanism is rationalized as a relative reality. Among most learned Buddhists, it is perceived as superstition. Thus, the powerful practice of shamanism, traditionally an integral part of the pastoral community transported from Tibet, was relevant at the camp for a few decades, but it is now passing as the older generation who remember the old ways die, and the younger seeks fulfillment in less traditional vocations or in Buddhism. Buddhism, Buddhism, Buddhism. Alright, uh, what is this? Well, if you want to check out this book, um, it's called Tibetan Shamanism, Ecstasy and Healing um, by Larry Peters. Beginning, okay, um... There's a lot of uh, interesting things I still need to... Okay, let's see. Nah, just look up Tibetan Buddhism. You'll see... I might put put something up on my uh, YouTube channel, but... um, Once you... Once you study it a bit and you look at it, um, just just soak in all of its images, sounds, culture, whatever, history. And then look at the Bible stories, especially the New Testament stories, through that context. And boom, man. I think, I think we have a story here. I think... All this stuff, the Vatican stole. It had to come from somewhere. 
I think it all came from this area, Central Asia, because that's just where all this history went down, man. That's just where all these civilizations just just met in that in that area. The Silk Road, the Xinjiang province, the it's it's all right there, man. Horses, shamans, volcanoes, mountains. It's all there, man. Poetry, it's all there, man. So, alright. Um, till next time, peace.